0: Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a new podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Korr, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com. Robbie. Each week, we begin this show with the most recent and relevant fact concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should listeners know about the week that was? Two things are clear. The first is that the number of people infected
1: with this coronavirus is flattening and, based on the number of deaths per week, most likely declining. This is not the same thing, Jeremy, though, as you well know, as the virus disappearing completely that won't happen. And with about 12,000 deaths this week, and the data we discussed last week about the mortality rate, we can assume that about half a million people contracted the virus three weeks ago, because that's when people became infected, leading to this week's death rate. In addition to the number of new cases and deaths, there were a variety of other stories this week that shed important insights into this virus. The first was on the disproportionate number of deaths coming from patients in nursing homes. Although only 1.5 million people in the United States live in one of these facilities, approximately 20% of the deaths to date have come from this population. What this demonstrates is that as a nation, we shouldn't apply a single strategy to social distancing. Although there's no hard line between the two demographics, We need one approach for those at greatest risk from the virus and a different one for those with minimal chance of dying. Supporting this conclusion about the need to segment the population was a second study, this one coming from New York City. Looking at patients hospitalized in this epicenter of the outbreak, researchers noted that 94% had at least one chronic disease and that 88% had at least Two, most commonly hypertension, diabetes, and or obesity. Third, there was a valuable lesson we gleaned this week from Singapore. As you remember, we talked about the success of this country in one of our earlier episodes, through very aggressive identification of all people with the disease, finding all of their contacts, and quarantining all of these people. And the results were outstanding in terms of both controlling the number of people infected and the number of deaths without the extreme economic consequences we've seen in the United States. Now suddenly, the government reports a thousand new cases in one week, more than the total for all of February and March. The reason for this spike was that the edges of towns, migrant workers from a variety of nations live together, tightly packed into rooms and traveling in vans each day to their jobs. These individuals who were not citizens of Singapore were not included in the government's efforts. But once the virus infected one of them, the results show how fast this virus can take off in a very minimal amount of time. Next, there were several stories about the limitations in the treatment doctors can provide. The first one also came from New York. Nearly all coronavirus patients who require required being placed on ventilators in New York City's largest healthcare system, Northwell Health, died. In contrast, the 20% of patients hospitalized who died, 88% of those who were intubated expired. Similarly, researchers analyzed records of 368 patients hospitalized at VA hospitals with confirmed coronavirus, and contrary to what many in this country assumed a month ago, Not only was the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine ineffective, but it was dangerous. In this study, 28% of those given the anti-malarial drug died, while only 11% given routine care succumbed. Finally, last week on our show, we talked about the drug Remdesivir, manufactured by Gilead, and the mysterious video from the University of Chicago that drove the stock market price up. We warned listeners on the show to be cautious in their enthusiasm, since the hype was anecdotal and not based on double-blind controlled science. Since then, the WHO mistakenly placed on its public website the data from the initial double-blind study that was performed, and it showed that the drug was not efficacious. Among patients receiving it, there was a 13% mortality, while those given the placebo had a 12% mortality. Gilead downplayed the results as relating to the timing of the administration of the medication, but of course, the stock market reacted with a major price decrease, as one might predict.
0: Robbie, you teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. How would you bring a strategic lens to the current COVID-19 pandemic? Jeremy, strategy has dozens of
1: elements, but a vital one is projecting not one step ahead, but multiple steps ahead. A good example of the difficulty in applying a strategic lens can be found in a recent poll of Americans by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is unconnected with Kaiser Permanente. In this study, eight in 10 Americans favored strict shelter-in-place requirements and said they'd be willing to do so for the next month. And about a third of all respondents said they could do it for six months. As part of the same study, the researchers reported a growing optimism about the virus, with a drop from 74% to 51% in the percentage of respondents who felt the worst was still to come. Applying a strategic lens to this information leads to two questions. First, for those willing to wait a month, what do they plan to do differently 30 days from now, given that the available data will most likely be similar to today? And for the additional 25% of people who are now more optimistic than three weeks ago, why? If the additional month that people want to wait reflects a belief that it requires that amount of time for the hospitals to stock up with preventive equipment and respirators, from a strategic perspective, that makes sense. For the wealthiest country on earth, that should be doable. In contrast, though, if the added 30 days represents postponing a difficult choice, that would be understandable, but not strategic. One of my favorite aphorisms is that hope is not a strategy. For those hoping that there will be a cure found over the next month, or that testing or social distancing will eliminate the virus, they will have a long wait, most likely a year or more. They can hope the time will be shorter but from a strategic perspective, they will have wasted 30 days. Miracles can happen, but strategists play the odds. Strategists would want to know the specific steps our country will take and the particular criteria, if not the specific dates on which social easing will happen. Particularly when it comes to testing, policy wonks and media pundits keep talking about the need for greatly expanded testing. And they're right, but that is only one step. The next question is, what will our country do with the results? There's a big difference, Jeremy, between telling people that we're going to provide free, easy to obtain testing for anyone who wants it, and then recommend they self-isolate, then planning to implement mandatory testing of people and require by law that not only those who test positive, but all of their contacts be quarantined for two weeks. I believe the American people need to understand what will come
0: next. Robbie, I don't know if you read it too, but I read a New York times article on Saturday that pointed out that Congress seemed to be reacting to this crisis in a reactive, not a proactive way. What are are your thoughts? Jeremy, I saw that article as well. And
1: I concur with the view of the reporter in chess, chess, there's an opening set of moves that often are scripted and reactive. But then they must be followed by a middle game and ultimately an end game. I believe that Congress responded appropriately in its opening moves, stabilizing a deteriorating situation by authorizing the dollars needed to expand unemployment benefits and provide loans to small businesses. But just following that same script month after month and passing economic packages to tide the nation for the next couple of months is problematic. Now is the time for the middle game and the elected officials don't seem able to make the pivot. In this middle game, the biology, the economics, the politics have to all come together. Bipartisanship is essential since an error would be lethal for both people's health and the economic health of the nation. Testing is vital, but it will only be efficacious if it is linked to a clear plan with well-defined scientifically-based steps and a timetable for easing social distancing, reopening businesses, and resuming schools. The key questions that the American people need to have answered are, first, do we have the protective equipment needed now in each hospital in the United States, and if not, by what date will it be in place? Second, do we have the number of testing kits required to ascertain acute infections in every person with symptoms and their immediate family contacts? And if not by geography, when will they be available? And finally, when will we have the antibody testing validated and available? These are the three variables that should define the timing And elected officials need to decide and clearly communicate the actions they will take based on each.
0: Vice President Pence told the nation this week that coronavirus could be largely passed by early June and that the U.S. is prepared if a second wave does hit. Do you agree?
1: Statements like these require context and definition. What does largely passed and prepared for second wave mean? By early June, if we keep social distancing in place, the number of new cases and therefore the number of weekly deaths will be fewer than they have been in April. And if prepared means we'll have testing kits and supplies in hospitals, I'd say it's about time. But if largely passed means that the virus will have died out and eliminating social distancing won't lead to a massive increase the number of people infected and the number of deaths, I'd say this is unscientific, and fantasy.
0: Your most recent Forbes article, Three Coronavirus Facts Americans Must Know Before Returning to Work, uh, is now one of their top-read articles. Given these facts you just mentioned and what you wrote about in the article, Robbie, how do you think we should move forward? Jeremy, as we've discussed on this show
1: multiple times, we need a strategic approach. I would do this with two clear objectives. Given that I don't believe we will find a way to eliminate this virus in less than 12 to 18 months, I would first aim to maintain an R-naught of one, and second, I would segment the population to make certain that we protect those at greatest risk. For new listeners to the show, the R-naught is the number of people that one infected person will pass the virus to. When that number is one, then each person with COVID 19 gives it to another individual. And as a result, the number of cases stays constant. When it rises above one, the incidence increases exponentially. And of course, when it goes below, the number of cases decline. What social distancing has accomplished is to lower the odd naught. From this coronavirus, from close to three down to one, or maybe even slightly less, based on the number of new cases and deaths being reported. As such, each time we reduce social distancing, whether by allowing businesses and schools to reopen, or by allowing greater numbers of people to congregate, we need to implement an equivalent set of steps to counterbalance. Kind of that increase in the R-naught for this coronavirus. As an example, already two-thirds of people wear masks, and if everyone did, those infected but asymptomatic would still not spread the virus or at least diminish the likelihood of doing so. Similarly, if all stores and restaurants maintained the six-foot distancing after they resumed operation, the magnitude of the rise in the R-naught would be constrained. And this is a role that testing plays. It doesn't lead to the elimination of the infection, but it makes it easier for people to be tested and to identify those individuals with the virus and therefore allowing them to self-isolate, muffling the impact that the easing of social distancing has and allowing our nation to more rapidly return towards normal. So the first goal that I would have is to keep that R-naught right around one, allowing us to address both the medical problems and the social and economic ones. At the same time, I believe as a nation, we need to struggle with some of the ethical issues involved and we should align risks and rewards. And fortunately, in this particular case, I believe that we can do that. The people most likely to be harmed by continuing social distancing are those who need to work to support their families or attend school and can't do either. Fortunately, they are also the ones with the lowest chance of getting sick from the virus. While those at greatest risk medically are the elderly, most of whom who are retired. And although social distancing from loved ones can be very problematic for them, they don't have the same requirements to leave the house, to work, or go to school. As a nation, we need to do what we can do to support those at higher risk, and protect them until there's a vaccine, but that doesn't mean we should be applying the same approach to everyone in the United States.
0: Robbie, we learned this week that a woman, uh, Patricia Dowd from Silicon Valley, died on February 6th from a massive heart attack. Based on tissue samples subsequently obtained, she was infected with the coronavirus. What does this mean?
1: Jeremy, her death means that the coronavirus was in the United States and circulating in the early part of January, at least three weeks before what we previously thought. That implies that even if we had been more aggressive in testing, finding contacts and quarantining both those with the virus and those uh, who had been around them, as early as late February, we most likely would have been unsuccessful at containing the virus in the United States. Remember that flights from China were not stopped until February the 2nd. And of course, by then, people coming from Europe were most likely infected as well. On March 1st, the total number of cases identified in the United States was 23. Current estimates would be that the actual number of cases was at that time between 20,000 and 28,000. When China did a contact identification, they found that the average person had come into close contact with 45 people in the time they were potentially able to transmit the virus. Multiply even 20,000 times 45, and something like 900,000 people would have to be found, tested, and quarantined in a day or two. The challenge most likely would have been impossible once the end of February arrived. One big lesson from this pandemic is how global the world has become and how impossible it will be in the future to prevent an infection of this nature, particularly for a virus that is communicable before people develop symptoms. A second lesson is how slow our nation was to identify the danger. As you remember from a prior podcast, the first confirmed case in Northern California was February 26th, almost a month after Mrs. Dow died and two months after the virus most likely came ashore. Jeremy is a businessman you're in contact with people across the community every day. The most recent data shows that 43% of small businesses are temporarily closed, and 40% of workers have been laid off or furloughed since January. When polls, 65% of small retailers and 70% of restaurants and bars say they may have to close permanently if the current requirements stay in place. As you know, the forgivable loans from the government can only be used when 75% of the dollars are applied to paying staff. Mom and pop stores with a few employees still have to pay rent, electricity, and insurance, and they won't qualify. When I talk to these business owners, they tell me they have drained their savings and are beginning to draw on their retirement accounts. In your opinion, Jeremy, how long can the average family survive?
0: I don't think they can survive very long financially or emotionally. Uh, The reality is, Many families live paycheck to paycheck, um, even with the 1200 per adult and 500 per dependent that the government recently sent to everyone that qualified. Um, that does not cover all the bills for many families. In my community, I've seen a popular bar that has been around for decades announce its permanent closure. Uh, seen another doing an online fundraiser. Um, I know many people who are on Reduced pay, unemployment, or reduced hours. Um, I've seen businesses lose many clients. Uh, Brick and mortar seems to be especially struggling. Uh, With the closure of many of the processing plants, farms don't have the best outlook either. Uh, I actually read an article about a woman who took one of those loans to pay her employees, but her employees got mad at her because they would have made more from unemployment than her paying them. Uh, The reality is, though, I think most Americans want to work and want to provide for themselves and their families. Uh, The emotional and psychological toll of economic uncertainty or knowing that you are not providing for your family is brutal. I know so many people who are at their wits end and desperately need to return to work as soon as possible. The small businesses and working class families cannot take much more of this. May must be the month of plans and answers. I'm truly scared of what will happen financially for many Americans and honestly, economically overall, if this lasts into June without them.
1: Jeremy, many countries in the world are using technology to monitor social interactions. As an example, South Korea is using cell phone data to track people exposed and to ensure they quarantine at home without fail when informed of the contact. In the Kaiser Family Foundation survey we mentioned at the top of the show, the researchers also queried people about this type of surveillance and the issues around privacy. Unlike the 80% who favored continued shelter in place, only half of respondents were willing to download an app on their phone to notify them if they had come in close contact with an infected person. And 53% said they would refuse to notify public health authorities if they tested positive as part of tracking efforts. How likely do you think our country would be in employing this type of public surveillance and monitoring if we decided to become more aggressive than today?
0: I think many Americans value freedom above all else. It's one of the things that makes our country special. It's one of the reasons why I think that a Wuhan-style lockdown was impossible here. Um, I got my degree in history and remain a huge history buff to this day. Historically, when freedoms are reduced or there is additional surveillance on a population by a government in a time of crisis, those rights and freedoms almost never come back to the way they were before the crisis. Experts say that people are kidding themselves if they think that anything we do on the internet or on our phones is truly private. That being said... While I think that surveillance like this would absolutely help in the fight against a pandemic, I think that it fundamentally violates American values. I personally do not think the ends justify the means. I think that a lot of Americans would agree with me on that. This would open the door for a scary level of surveillance that may never close and could be used for much less noble reasons than stopping a pandemic in the future. I don't mean to sound paranoid or anything, but historically, that's just kind of how it's always happened. Robbie, headlines abound about the economic devastation this coronavirus is producing. Put on your business school hat. What do you think? In the same way that I'm shocked
1: how people reading the data and the number of infections and deaths seem surprised week after week, I'm equally at a loss to understand the response to the financial reports. When our nation has 30 million small businesses, employing 60 million people and half have been required to close, and 40 percent have laid off or furloughed their staff, we could predict at least 15 million unemployed, and add on top of that people laid off by larger corporations and those not yet eligible, we would predict that the current 26 million people who have filed for unemployment is what we would have expected, or even possibly being a number that is too low. Similar elected officials are now talking about the fiscal issues facing states, cities, and counties. These economic challenges were 100% predictable over a month ago. When your revenue is based on taxes and a huge number of businesses have been ordered to close, what else should Congress have expected? And when the federal government has to borrow money to repay the multi-trillions in payments that it has promised, we know that there will be major financial repercussions in the future, whether they are inflation, higher taxes, the need to constrain entitlement programs, or all three. No one should be surprised when any of these things happen, but I predict they will be, or at least act as though they are. Whether there's a level of denial or intentional avoidance of the difficult realities we face, elected officials continue to seem unable or unwilling to tell the nation the truth about not only what is happening now, but also what is definitely going to come in the months and years ahead. In most recessions, the country experiences what's called a V recession, with a sharp decline followed by a rapid recovery. Some people, in talking about a second wave, have described it as a W. They describe these patterns, whether a V or a W, as somewhat unpredictable. What listeners should understand is that to a large degree, we control what that graph will look like. We can make it sawtooth if we open and close retail again and again. We can make it appear like a trough-like structure if we keep social distancing in place until next year. Or we can make it be a V, although with the rising arm flatter than the declining one, if we move forward next month to rapidly ease social distancing and reduce the restrictions on businesses. All of these approaches are under our control, but of course, there are none without risks.
0: Robbie, when you were a CEO in Kaiser Permanente, you implemented technology that achieved superior quality, provided greater patient convenience and lower costs. What are you seeing today that may move our country in that direction in the future? The most obvious example is telehealth,
1: with 22% of people having obtained medical care by phone, and 13% through a video visit. Before COVID-19, the number was in the low single digits. And most encouragingly, to a person, the physicians I've talked to across this country, who have tried providing medical care virtually for the first time, now plan to continue to do so in the future assuming, of course, that the easing of regulatory restrictions and reimbursement payments are maintained. A second area that has not gotten as much attention as telemedicine is the filling of medication refills by mail. In Kaiser Permanente, we use robots in a central repository to refill people's prescriptions. Given the fact that these robotic arms work continually day and night, the medications can be shipped to people's houses at a fraction of the cost of having a pharmacist count out and package the drugs. And the degree of accuracy of the robots was 100%. With people not wanting to leave their homes, receiving medication by mail or through UPS has become routine. Even when social distancing expectations are eased, I believe people will want to continue the convenience of this service. But of course, with some drugs like narcotics, individuals will still be required to pick them up and show identification in person.
0: Last week, the World Health Organization said there is no evidence showing that having had the coronavirus prevents a second infection. Uh, they then seem to walk it back a bit. My understanding is that there is no concrete evidence yet, but based on how viruses work and antibodies work, it, they will, the antibodies will most likely provide at least some level of protection for at least some length of time. What, what are your thoughts on this? This is still an
1: evolving area, and I think the WHO statement was taken slightly out of context. What the WHO said is that we don't know for certain that these antibodies will be protective, and that's true. We don't know for certain, but most likely they will be in all of the other coronaviruses they are, They were in SARS and in MERS, and we can take a good guess that in this particular one, they will be as well. But of course, what we don't know is how long they will last. With the common cold, they tend to last a relatively short amount of time, and obviously with other diseases, not coronaviruses, but diseases like measles and chickenpox, they last for most of an individual's lifetime. We still have much to learn. We're still trying to figure out whether the antibodies can be extracted from someone's plasma. Give it to an individual who is extremely ill and help them to recover. That did work, people believe, from 100 years ago during the time of the Spanish flu. We need evidence around that. And of course, laboratories are trying to duplicate these types of antibodies so that they can be more easily given to individuals. I think the WHO statement was to make certain that people's enthusiasm did not get ahead of the data, but unfortunately, as you pointed out, for some people, they interpreted this pessimistically. When it comes to the science of viruses, we have to learn in a step-by-step way, and unfortunately, that's where we are with this particular one, We'll know a lot more six months from now than we know today.
0: Last week, you posed some of the questions that remain to be answered. And we've heard from dozens of listeners, found that information extremely helpful. This week, let me ask you a slightly different question. What's surprising to physicians about this virus? Let me begin by telling listeners that there are huge
1: numbers of questions that remain unanswered and clinical findings that physicians simply can't explain. As a result, on the Coronavirus The Truth podcast, we'll return to these subjects again and again over the next few weeks, but here are a few of the things that physicians are talking about. First, the pneumonia produced by this virus seems different than the pneumonia we've seen with the flu or with other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. Doctors are treating patients or doctors are seeing patients with very low oxygen levels in their blood, secondary to COVID-19, but these people seem relatively okay. Under most circumstances, they would be incoherent or unresponsive. This experience has led some clinicians to think that maybe in the same way that we monitor temperature for the most severe infections, we should be measuring levels of blood oxygen for people at home with COVID-19 to figure out when they should be hospitalized for more extensive care. Given the unusual presentation of pulmonary complications from this coronavirus, there are some people who have pointed out the similarity to altitude sickness, although pulmonologists are quick to warn people of the differences. As a result of the variance to traditional pneumonia, critical care specialists are debating how best to adjust the settings on ventilators and even in some patients, recommend alternative approaches to intubation. Second, clinicians are diagnosing vascular clotting in the blood supply to various organs that they don't usually associate with other coronaviruses or the flu. This finding has led some critical care doctors to consider anticoagulation of patients as a preventive measure. Finally, recently, there's been multiple anecdotes of relatively young people in their 30s and 40s developing strokes as their first presenting symptom of COVID-19, something rarely seen in people under the age of 70 without associated medical issues. A vascular component may help explain why this coronavirus seems so problematic in patients with high blood pressure, although it should be noted that this is a frequent chronic disease in elderly individuals. And this, therefore, might be a correlation rather than causation. And the same factor may be partially responsible for why people with asthma have not experienced an increased mortality than those without the problem, although you might predict in a disease that is lethal, secondary to pneumonia, that asthmatic patients with asthma would be at greatest risk. The take-home message to listeners about these uncertainties is how long scientific advancement takes and that no degree of anxiety can accelerate it. The scientific method requires hypothesis followed by in-depth and unbiased testing with a sufficient number of participants to make the findings statistically significant. And invariably, the theories and treatments become refined again and again over time, which makes the journey longer, but the destination better. I can assure listeners that thousands of physicians and researchers across this country are working long hours every day to find the answers to these and other perplexing questions. But unfortunately, accurate science takes time. I'm hoping that the answers to these questions about COVID-19 will prepare us for whatever comes next, whether an entirely different virus or the next series of chapters for this one.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and available on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.